0: (laughs) we've tied up your family members to the
1: railroad tracks and there's a train coming. Right. Are are gonna feel better as plot elements. Right. You've literally railroaded my family. And so now you have railroaded the story. Right.
0: Exactly. dangerous homestead in new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 257 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order
1: to inspire yours in this episode we're talking about using family members in your games but first the party hops a train in the gates of morning campaign and later the brother in arms makes sure everyone makes it home in the character creation forge So a bunch of tweets from Jeremy Crawford talking about how D&D is gonna move uh, away from alignment in future products. I don't really know what that means. Changes to alignment are coming. Uh, I guess this is sort of part and parcel of shifting humanoid races away from always evil alignments. Uh, I... I mean, they're not going to drop alignment entirely, right? Like, it's moved beyond the game itself.
0: No one can take your alignment away. It's got a TV Tropes page. Right. (laughs) Like, like it's in your game if you want it. Done. Great.
1: Right. Most of the people online using, like, nine box alignment are memers who, like, don't even know that it comes from D&D uh but have like fully adopted like onboarded the the construct and like it's not going a- away. I mean it's great that it won't necessarily be like codified into rules. I mean I guess it probably affects adventures league players more than anyone.
0: But it already isn't codified into rules, right? No nothing uses alignment.
1: Well, but you know uh in the monster manual it'll list like monster alignments. Yeah. You got to be like, "Well, it says the the blue dragon is is evil, so I guess it's got to be evil."
0: Sure. I don't know. Like, the, the, those are already like canned encounters, right? So the dragon's going to do what the dragon's going to do in an Adventure League module. Like, what does that matter for that? I don't know. Whatever. It's fine. I mean, great. We can move on past alignment. Fourth edition did it, more or less.
1: Yeah. We'll just make everyone unaligned. So you'll still have an alignment, but it won't matter. <laughs> uh? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and then that will make everyone happy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> also, um, there have been uh, recently, uh, I've, I've seen a fair number of like Black Lives Matter dice initiatives out there, which uh, are always cool. One I wanted to call out is uh, you may have seen like a photo going around of um, a woman at a protest, I think in Texas, uh, holding a sign with a, a D20 that says Black Lives Are Critical. That was cool. Um, and Matthew Lillard from Scooby Doo fame and Beetle and Grimm uh, got wind of it and uh, put Uh, a group together to actually make those dice and so they're going to be made by ice cream dice you know the guy who makes those layered uh candy corn dice you've probably seen around uh
0: i have a set of mint mint chip crits mint crits i think they are they're like they look like mint chocolate chip ice cream
1: nice so these uh instead of the 20 it says blac black lives are critical uh and they're like um brown and gold uh and and black with gold glitter in them Uh, so they're in pre-order right now so if you want to check them out you can take a look at the link in the show notes
0: i love how you're bringing
1: dice stories to the podcast now ishan it's because you've corrupted me (laughs) (laughs) like i said i love it the the art channel on uh the discord server is like half dice (laughs) (laughs) and you're welcome just the time when you can't actually use them at a table is now a good time to start collecting them it makes you feel like uh makes you feel like you're there you know
0: (laughs) sure there's also a black lives matter set available from heartbeat dice which is another queer nbi poc owned and operated dice maker um if you're interested in dice that say um blm on the 20 or one of their 20s has a uh a fist but they are also a black and yellow scheme so, um any flavor of social justice you prefer to roll is available.
1: And and they exist right now so you could get those immediately. Uh, Ice cream dice has uh, a Kickstarter for Pride dice I think that just ended so those will be out I think early next year too. So hey. All
0: right. So now that you've fed your uh, burgeoning dice addiction Ishan,
1: where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? The Gates of Morning campaign is our fifth edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in central Carnath, on the lightning rail to Korth, the party is chasing a killer. Well, kind of more chasing a body right now, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> because
0: Ephraim's coffin is buzzing away towards Korth, and the party is currently <laughs> stranded in the wilderness because we hopped off the train.
1: A <laughs> couple of you got thrown, a couple of you dived after them, that was nice. But yeah, in order to catch a killer, you kind of need a body for proof of death. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, um, yeah, you're stuck there in the middle of the wilderness, and until the next lightning rail comes by, there's not really a way out of here because it's like a multiple days uh, journey by foot. So, the party decides to wait until the next morning and hop the next train. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so now we're stowaways. Though I think we figured out the
0: tickets like just entitle you to a passage. They aren't like which train you're on. So right. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, once once you days. get
1: on, like if they check your tickets again, you've got them. Uh, I also fully expected that maybe you'd be like, oh, "Let's never pay again. Let's just hop like walk a mile outside of town, hop the train, and if they catch us, then they'll just throw us off, and we'll just wait for the next train." <laughs> <laughs>
0: True hobos, <laughs> not murder <laughs> hobos, just
1: hobos now. <laughs> How much is a trash can in an adventuring kit? (laughs) What is the Eberron equivalent of a can of beans? (laughs) All right, so Warden locates a suitably large tree, and after some awkward climbing, because uh, this is an entire party that dumped strength, uh, they use a system of ropes and pulleys and applied leverage, uh, and eventually everyone gets into the high branches, sort of straps themselves in so they're not in danger of falling down, and they settle in to rest for the night.
0: So during the fourth watch, a pack of dire wolves approaches and warden casts pass without trace to obscure our location, disguising the sound of the spell with the hoot of an owl, uh, using his staff of bird calls, the common magic item that he picked up and has <laughs> never used before. <laughs> yeah.
1: Y- you all got, uh, two common magic items, uh, cause this is Eberron and, uh, you and Jim, I think, did the best jobs of, like, figuring out ways to actually incorporate them <laughs> and get some mechanical use out of them. So, yeah, I mean, I just use my staff of bird calls as,
0: like, uh, a, a low-key messaging system, right? It's like, <laughs> if you hear this call, it's danger. If you hear this call, it's nothing. I'm just bored.
1: <laughs> Could I have just hooted normally? Sure, but this one perfectly mimics it.
0: Yeah, this one doesn't take a roll.
1: <laughs> so Switch and Xan both ready their weapons in case there's going to be a fight, but... The pack ends up passing them by without noticing them. And the party can see that the direwolves are warped in some way. They have exposed sinew and patched fur. And when Switch uses her paladin senses, they all detect as undead. And of course, while Karnath is known for using undead soldiers in battle, the party knows that this is not normal for wild creatures. Yeah, cool. Mornland direwolves, those would have been a fun fight.
0: You are very close to the border. <laughs> So the next morning, the group readies a plan of action. Perched in a tree near the lightning rail conductor stones, Warden again casts Pass Without Trace, uh, MVP spell of the session.
1: Uh, not even this session, right? Like multiple campaigns. Our Dark Sun yeah. campaign also, right? It's pretty mandatory. <laughs> <laughs>
0: also, we used it in um, Castle Amber. So,
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: So as the front of the train passes... Uh, Warden shifts into the form of a giant stag and leaps into the air, and then before he plummets to the ground, Xan and Vesica jump on his back, and he sprouts massive, iridescent
1: dragonfly wings to safely land on the train. It's a good thing Pass Without Trace also works on uh, visual acuity, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a straight plus 10 to stealth checks. <laughs> So uh, he flies them to a car near the middle of the train and they hop off, successfully steadying themselves atop the roof as the wind is buffeting them. Although Vesica does need to manipulate the fundamental forces of chaos to keep himself from tumbling off the roof. At the same time, Bramble, the shifter, has polymorphed Switch the Paladin into a giant eagle. He's hopped on her back and she ferries him to the top of the same car. uh, Although when he uh, jumps off, Again, terrible athletics checks all around. He nearly falls off, but she steadies him with one of her uh, giant wings. Warden then returns to the tall tree, picks up Lenore and Bach, and then ferries them back to the train and is able to land them on a car near the back of the train before it completely passes.
0: Yeah, we tried to like spread ourselves out and then also you know the train is moving through so it's difficult to get everybody back to the same spot but hey hopefully we don't all get spotted if one of us gets arrested on this thing
1: that's right 500 feet every round the train is whizzing by yeah (laughs) so switch and warden return to humanoid form and the party climbs down from the roof and one by one slips into different steerage carriages playing off their entry like they're just coming from another car and you know nobody cares
0: so The party settles in for the 200-mile journey to the Karnathi capital, Korth. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So, this week, we are talking about family members. And this is a uh, topic that came out of our Discord um, Astronomifier. Asked, does anyone know any resources on how to handle PCs with civilian families in a way that makes the player feel like their choice to have a family is acknowledged by the plot? Um, and then kind of got expanded upon a little bit by Awful Monk, um, asking for some advice and just generally, you know, how do we make family not be just a sad backstory hook, but actual NPCs?
1: It can be a sad front story. I acknowledged your family with a meteor swarm cast by the NPC Lich.
0: <laughs> there you go, Fridge him up front.
1: Right? Isn't that motivation for you? Do you like it? <laughs>
0: it's only <laughs> if it's a woman, Ishan. Should... Oh, right. Of course, <laughs> I am but a straight man. <laughs>
1: Right, he's a hero. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> yeah, we'll spitball some ideas. Some of these are pretty basic. We'll kind of talk about you know a lot of the background stuff as well. Uh, some of it is a little more speculative things that we probably haven't really done, um, but you know could work in in your campaign. Really, given how your PCs and how your players are are sort of envisioning their family members being involved.
1: Yeah. So I think this question comes up because dealing with family is a challenge for gms like there there was the trope of course of like i'll kill your entire family uh as a motivation and and i don't think this happens because gms are necessarily spiteful it's because it's sort of a natural evolution of a story that centers around a, a small group of heroic adventurers who become exponentially more powerful as you know they like gallivant around the countryside and like what do you do with the the blacksmith's family right you either ignore them completely or if you want to bring them in the story you end up just murdering them
0: right it's like you left home in iowa and then became a five-star general who like conquered europe and then you came home and it's like
1: what am i gonna go back to farming now (laughs) like what what am i doing right and you run into this you know this tension where if they're gonna be if the family's gonna be part of the story then that kind of means they need to be pcs Or they need to be like big name NPCs and now the GM is running all of them and that like takes away agency from the player who just wanted to like have a realistic family. Right. So, of course, what do most people do? You make your character an orphan. Yeah. So this is the first (laughs) challenge,
0: of course, is that so many characters will just be orphans so that the GM doesn't have leverage over
1: them in that way.
0: Um, You can't punish a player for having a family if his family is already dead.
1: I mean I'm going to give a shout out to Angelo from our gaming group here who uh, in our fourth edition game I had an orphan character and he brought my family back to life and made me murder them because of time travel shenanigans. <laughs> your <laughs> family's <laughs> dead. That's true. It's because of you. It's your yeah. fault. <laughs> uh, when you hit a certain
0: level <laughs> death is just a speed bump. <laughs> <laughs> Another big challenge to watch out for is children um you know threatening children in any regard can just be off-putting to players especially to players who are parents themselves um you know a lot of times it's tempting as a gm because it seems like the ultimate threat you know it seems like the the lever that you can pull that will force action um out of your pcs but or or like it's the way to show how depraved a villain is but like a lot of times this is going to get you an x card or it should get you an x card frankly for the discomfort that it will cause so you've got to be really careful about that
1: yeah and you know tread carefully even when you're not necessarily like having characters murder children like any sort of threat to a child is dangerous territory you definitely want to be talking about this above the table with the people at your table and specifically with the the character who has like a child npc right even something like kidnapping in like a what's supposed to be sort of a light um almost like farcical kind of way can definitely lead to darker places for some people
0: yeah like like hook is the one that always stands out to me yeah you know, it's like in, in a way, right, like on its surface, Hook is just trying to be a father because he doesn't have a family and like tries to turn Peter Pan's kid into like a little version of him. But like that's kidnapping. That's like heavy grooming behavior. It's very disgusting. Uh, you got to be real careful with that stuff, too. Even if you let them play baseball, you know, run home, Jack. Another challenge that you can run into with families and and trying to incorporate them is just the distance that you cover in a campaign, like the physical distance. Like You run into that problem of being out of sight means they're out of mind. Um, It becomes harder to incorporate personal elements when you grow further afield from where your family is normally located. So if you travel outside of your barony or you leave the country or you know even in in some settings like traveling states you know like if your family is in louisiana and you're in the wild west of you know arizona or something like they're effectively gone you know a letter takes weeks to get back home
1: yeah or i have godlike powers and i'm you know 90 percent cybernetics now uh, how do i even relate to my normal family who hasn't seen me in two years Right. (laughs) Or like, I'm literally on another plane of existence. We are infinite number of miles apart. The Dr. Manhattan problem. (laughs) I I live on Mars now. (laughs) And then I alluded to this a, a little bit, but you end up in this shared ownership problem sometimes, right? Like whose NPC are they? Certainly they belong to the character who created them in the first place, but if they're going to have a part in the game, the GM also runs them, right? So now as a GM, you have NPCs who you can't totally control and as a player you have parts of your backstory that are being pulled away from you in a direction you may not have intended in the first place
0: yeah there's like a sort of a tacit agreement right like if you have a pet or you have a familiar or you have like a henchman you know as a player you kind of more or less make the decisions on their behalf Um, sometimes you just straight up mechanically control them right like they move on your initiative and you make their decisions or whatever but like family members exist in this shared space where like they are on your character sheet. That's their where they're initiated from. But if they're gonna have any value to the plot, the GM has to take over their agency, probably for large periods of time. So it, you just need to like make sure that you're staying true to the vision that the player had for that character. Um and you know, not turning like their happy homebody, like you know, uh spouse and two kids into something more Machiavellian or mischievous or something if that isn't really the vision that they have for that
1: family of theirs. Good practice for this is games where you have shared PCs. Um, It was actually nice when we were playing uh, Band of Blades when you you sort of create the personality for a character when they're first created and then someone else plays that character and then someone else plays that character and you might get them later as well. It was it was good practice, I think, to like for me, for example, to, um, you know, create uh, a sniper and then have someone else play that sniper and for me to sort of experience them playing them in a way that like I hadn't initially envisioned, but now that be- sort of becomes canon for them. And then when when they like circle back around to me and I'm playing the character, again, I'm sort of incorporating the changes that were made to them. Uh, in a way that still makes sense um and and it it was like it was good to sort of realize that you kind of need to like let let them go a bit like you're creating this character in this shared storyline you hand them off to someone else and you sort of trust them to do well with it but of course again like that is part of the reasoning behind band of blades and in a regular game where that doesn't usually happen you're going to need to have a conversation about that ahead of time
0: yeah that's just a, a structural thing with rpgs is like everyone is a writer in their own way but you never get to kill your darlings right like you never have that prompt of like okay you've done too much with this you need to pare it back like no one tells you that uh until you have some kind of secondary element that sort of helps prompt that or or a game that's actually fully structurally designed around it Mm -hmm. uh then we kind of alluded to it at the top but I, i think a big challenge that you can run into with introducing family members. And I I think one of the reasons you find so many orphans is that there is a tendency to just have a GM who fridges an NPC, right? Your, your spouse, your kids, your brother, your parents, whatever. um, They get targeted. They just get killed. And that is supposed to be the inherent motivation for you as a character. Now is like, that has to supersede everything Um, because you paid this price of killing a character.
1: Yeah, and all that means is if you created a character who has a family and then they're killed as motivation, that means that you created a character that didn't have motivation to begin with or the GM ignored the motivation that you wrote into the story anyway to say, well, no, here's your motivation. Your family's dead.
0: Right. Or you are therefore deciding to be a monster because the thing that should be at least somewhat affecting you is now doing nothing for your character and whatever's driving you otherwise now so far supersedes your family that you become kind of inhuman
1: right and then there's also a situation where your motivation is protect my family right like I don't want to be out adventuring I'd rather be a farmer like the the Cincinnatus character essentially but you're like I, I need to be out here because I'm the only one who can like protect them and like, keep the world safe so like they can live sheltered and happy lives if the gm then kills the family you have now destroyed the character's motivation right Right. i mean i guess you can turn to a punisher revenge fantasy but like you get you get a lot of characters who are like i have nothing to live for now what was the point
0: yeah no no no, exactly like you, you can do that as a player it's great if you want to make that turn go talk to your gm about it but as a gm like it can be very difficult to do the like Even if you talk to the player, it's probably a bad idea because you're not going to get the effect of the fridging that Mm -hmm. you would expect if you've kind of prefaced it with, hey, are you cool with this? (laughs) You know, like the shock value is part of why it's a useful technique in so much as it even is useful because it's so tropey.
1: All right, so we've gone through a lot of the challenges. Let's talk about some of the approaches to make families actually work.
0: So slightly rejecting the premise of the question, the first obviously is the backstory, right? It's the basis here. So your family is mentioned in your background, but they never show up on screen. They're probably the reason you're adventuring, either, like you said, to protect them in the broad sense, to accomplish something, to feed them money or whatever it is that they need, um, or, you know, alternatively to escape your family. But the point is they initiated your heroic journey and then they have disappeared. And that's where they stay is just in your background.
1: Yeah, that's the safest place to keep them, actually. Yeah. (laughs) And this happens with lots of backstory elements, right? Family is is just one of them. It's really simple to be like, I'm here in the big city of Waterdeep or whatever, but I'm not from here, right? I'm from a small farming community, like 300 miles away. We never see that farming community. It just feeds into who I am and, and sort of helps you figure out like who this character is. And family can do the same thing. You can talk about stories about like, You know, what my mother taught me and like what uh, I learned from like my siblings and, you know, the tragedy that befell them. And these are all things that can inform the character. You can bring them in. So they're important role playing elements, um, but they don't necessarily have to have a mechanical or even narrative impact on the story.
0: Yeah. and, And keep in mind, like this happens for good reason. Right. It's it's because it's more powerful to show than it is to tell. And backstory elements are inherently telling. So if you can find motivation in the foreground, right, find motivation in the plot of the game that you're playing, that's always going to be more compelling and it's going to bring the other players in better than something that's pre-written on your page that is distant to everyone's understanding of what's going on in the game.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to remember that you can do this even as an orphan character, right? If the family death happened in the backstory or even if they happened like during the game, The family is gone, but they are still remembered and they still have a huge impact on who the character is and will be in the future. And you can bring all of that in.
0: Right. Um, So one way to bring them further into the foreground without necessarily having them appear on screen is to use them as pen pals. Um, So they'll stay mainly in the background, but you can stay in sort of occasional contact, right? Um, You might send them information, they might send you uh, useful information or send you small resources or, you know, even if it's just a a light world building for the GM's perspective of what's the gossip, you know, like what's going on in town, what's going on uh, in the baron's lands, what's going on in this kingdom, that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. Think of all the NPCs who show up in games who never actually end up in the middle of the action, right? Um, A a shopkeeper, um, but not even necessarily somebody who you are meeting in person, right? People have, I have a contact or I know a person. Um, In a lot of games, maybe you'll send a letter, but it's also possible that you'll be, you know, connecting with them via like quantum entangled bits or or sending magic, if, if that's something that's available to you, right? Oh, like, they Face don't need time. to be anywhere nearby. Right. <laughs> and even if they aren't, quote-unquote, useful to the party, right? Even if they're not, like, your Thieves Guild contact or, you know, a master artisan who is creating a, a magic item for you, uh, these family members can just be touchstones. Um, you think about in, in Knight's Black Agents, you know, you have um, a person who... Whose very existence is sort of one of the reasons that you're able to like go out there and fight vampires as a super spy in the first place, you know, and they don't really show up on screen, but they exist. And if you need to, then, you know, there's a scene or whatever where you like travel, you sort of make a pilgrimage back to them.
0: Yeah, the uh, Night Spock Agents has the concept of solace and safety, which are both typically people. Um, those are the people you turn to when you're at your darkest moment and when you're your most terrified, right? Like who are the people who shelter you and and bring you back to center? Um, You know, a lot of times that is used to kind of inform how you're recovering from the stresses of what an adventure in Night's Black Agents is, you know, hunting vampires as a super spy, probably outside the fringes of your government. Um, That's not a whole lot different than an adventure in, you know, low fantasy setting either <laughs> you know like the dangers are are still present and perhaps even worse
1: yeah uh and like these characters the the solace uh, and the safety are like very rarely ever in danger right they're a narrative element that humanizes the character right like that's that's their use it's not like oh i'm gonna go like you know visit my family but if i go like i'm putting them in danger and like they're all gonna get murdered by vampires it, it happens sort of in in the downtime.
0: Um, The other useful thing about pen pals is you can use those letters from home or letters to home as your framing device for your session recaps. Um, And then a lot of times you'll be drawn into like they've been in the background for a period of time, right? For months, maybe you've been writing them letters or getting updates from them. In that second or third act twist, you can now bring them on screen. Right, And now they're not an NPC that like everyone vaguely knows is important because, oh, it's on somebody's sheet. But now they've actually been a character that has been involved in the game to this point. When they show up on screen, they're a known quantity. The impact is greater. Uh, you get more value out of them without having to really play too much with
1: that character up to that point. Right. You don't need to introduce a person that nobody recognizes and then explain... Like why they're important, Oh, this this is the artificer that you know you've been dealing with. All you need to do is say, "Hey, it, you know, it's your dad," I, and then suddenly, y- like that's a big deal. Why? Like, why are they here? You've
0: you've done this before, right? Because I know I have, which is like I'm looking to bring an NPC in, and like so I start going through like backgrounds for my care for the characters, and it's like okay, perfect. This. This character was friends with this artificer, like, or this blacksmith, or whatever. Like, I'm gonna bring them in. It's gonna be this big emotional hit, and I'm like, "Here's Arwin," and everyone goes, "Who the f- is Arwin? <laughs> like, what, what are you talking?" And I'm like, "It's in your back. You didn't read your backstory either. <laughs> like, it's been nine months since you wrote that. Of course, you don't know who Arwin is." <laughs> So now I'm explaining to you why it's important, again, telling instead of showing, right?
1: Right. Yeah. Make sure that people actually value these characters before you pull them in. Um, I also think that uh, the pen pal aspect is really great for world building. Um, Even if a character never shows up on screen, they can be telling you. The, the character and then, you know, by extension, the party, all the things that are happening in different parts of the world, they get the sort of the ground eye view of what is it like to be a commoner in these lands who are affected by like the world shaking deeds that are happening or or, or even just, you know, a, a normal average person who, again, adds some sort of level of humanity to a character who's usually probably stuck in combat. Like I think about in Firefly, what are the two things that everybody knows about Jane, the mercenary? One, he has a gun named Vera that he loves and two, he has a very fine hat from his mother, which just shows up in one episode where he gets a dumb looking hat, but that tells you so much about Jane, his mother and their relationship And that from one letter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You can introduce family as sort of downtime activities. They can just be the flavor of what you're doing in between adventures, Um, you know, kind of depending on the geographic location of where things take place and sort of how much time you have for downtime. That might be more or less practical given your game. Um, of course, it's also a great way for um, syncing player resources that otherwise have no place <laughs> you know like it's great that I have all this gold that I can't really spend I'll send it back home
1: right you know and you know if you ever do visit the home or even just in future letters, they can talk about how that gold is being put to good use right like there's so many backstory elements or even like class features or abilities um, that players might choose that gives them, a person that they know who can do something for them, a contact, uh, someone that they sort of trust implicitly, like within the framework of the rules, the mechanical rules is like, hey, you, whatever, spent this number of XP and you get a a contact who like is in the Thieves Guild or knows how to make stuff for you or can procure certain goods for you. And like the game sort of guarantees that that person isn't going to screw you over, right? Right. Because like you spent a resource for it. One of the ways to explain that in game is to have them be a family member. Like it makes perfect sense that you happen to know somebody who can get you these illicit goods and that's dangerous for them and they're not going to screw you over because like that's my cousin.
0: Right. What we really want to do is figure out how to use family
1: members as plot elements.
0: Right. So what are some ways that we can actually take them from a background and pull them into the foreground of what's going on in your campaign?
1: Yeah, short of actually murdering them on screen, you can leverage them uh, and put them in danger as long as the player is okay with that, right? They are soft spots that an enemy can target.
0: They don't have to necessarily be like under threat of death, right? But let's say that your rival has purchased your family's debt and now they are at risk of going to prison just out of spite for you. Like that's a problem you have to deal with and also a very like... I don't know, like Elizabethan approach to (laughs) dealing with your rivals, right? Um, Like things like that, where you can still just like, it's a way to compel you forward, but not something that's going to ruin your character. You know, it's bad, but it's not the end of the world kind of thing.
1: Right. Or, you know, it can be a motivator for the party, right? Like, You don't need to threaten the family directly, but if someone's family or even like multiple people's family live in a small farming village to the north and the party is deciding, all right, do we stop the marauding orc hordes who are headed north or do we like attack the rampaging dragon in the west? Probably the party is going to choose the orc horde to save someone's family.
0: Yeah, that's great. Or like you know, the location that your family lit, like the the place that you're from, is not strategically important, like in a war, for example. But like the enemy commander knows that's where your family is, so they're going to target that just to force you to react. Things like that, right? That are less, you know, (laughs) we've tied up your family members to the railroad tracks and there's a train coming, right? Are are gonna (laughs) feel better as plot elements,
1: right? You've literally railroaded my family. And so now you have railroaded the story, <laughs> right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> so we we've hinted at this a little bit. Um, you know, using your family members as quest or information givers is is a great way to incorporate them more in the foreground. So you know, if you have background activities that need to be done, you know, an extra set of hands for research, or you know, a blacksmith to maintain your equipment, or you know, the um, the mechanic who maintains your mechs. Um, Great use of family members right they stay Mm -hmm. close to the party they're involved but they're not directly on the front line under threat Um, you can characterize them they can be fully supportive of the PCs agency without necessarily um, feeling like a liability.
1: Yeah, I think this works especially well for, you know, noble and powerful families, because one, of course, those families are usually sort of sprawling family trees where you have tons of different relatives and you don't have to bring every single one of them in. But it makes sense that one of them would at least be plot relevant.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like if your situation, like if, if your plot is unfolding where the party is beholden to a duke. Why not make that the
1: ranger's great uncle?
0: (laughs) Like, why not add a family element to that, too, and make it a little more
1: complicated or
0: a little more personal?
1: Yeah, you get into these. You can get into fun situations where, like, someone has a 'er ne'er-do-well brother who's always getting into trouble. And you know what? He sort of has uh, aspirations of being a PC, in a way, in terms of the plot and causing trouble because another one of his schemes is going off in uh just so happens the uh, city that you are visiting and like need to gain an audience uh with the queen well (laughs) he happens to have her ear because he's really good at that at least for about a month before people find out about him right (laughs) (laughs) um yeah
0: on that make sure that you're fitting the vision of the family (laughs) you know like like sure if you have a a a screw-up kind of slightly criminal brother great yeah obviously bring them in right if you've got a uh, a family full of scheming noble nobles then yes your wicked stepmother is perfectly on brand um but if you've got like just kind of a kind benevolent you know wholesome family probably don't bring those elements in unless you've got buy-in
1: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah actually for players you know you can really characterize these people if you want them to be used like let the gm know what this person is capable of like what are their aspirations and then also the the kind of tone right if if you have like a kind of dating myself like a roger clinton kind of i'm kind sorry of like, who <laughs> bill clinton bill clinton's screw-up brother uh who like <laughs> nev- okay. never really did anything useful and like never really succeeded in life uh if you write one of those in then it makes sense if they become part of the plot and are sort of like throwing a wrench into things, but they're probably not going to be like sacrificed by, you know, a Nurgle cult because that's not the tone of that character.
0: Right. Um, the thing the thing about all of that stuff is keep in mind the players have to be reactive to that, right? Like they're, you are in a way sort of compelling them into an action, um, taking away some of their agency. You can flip that around, um, family can be a source of opportunity, right? So, again, that criminal half-brother, um, maybe he has a lead on a big score, right? And he just needs a crew to pull it off. Well, I happen to know a crew. <laughs> They're the PCs. Um, right. Or, or even in legal grounds, right? Like, there might be a salvage opportunity or trade negotiations or peace talks or whatever. Like, any type of change in the world creates opportunity for somebody you're family members could recognize that opportunity and try to bring you in to help them.
1: Yeah. A nice way to do this, to sort of share the the narrative elements of this one character is to take sort of the dungeon world approach of world building, which is you can say, you know, yes, your, your scheming half brother that you wrote in a backstory is here and present and has the ear of the queen. How did he do that? You tell me because you know him best. And yeah. then you sort of work that into the backstory and like that just becomes canon.
0: That's also a big part of like gumshoe games when you spend resources, mm-hmm. right? Is it's like, cool, like, yes, you have contacts. Who are they? How did you get them? How do you know them? Like, you're going to spend one of your resources. What are you burning? Who are you burning in this process?
1: Yeah, and then the player one is leveraging leveraging those resources that they've sort of spent time and, you know, creation points on um they get to flesh out this character that they created in the first place and they get to maintain sort of like you know authorial intent over this person's actions
0: and then anytime you're bringing your like kind of family and npcs into a plot type activities you got to ask are they going to join on the mission are they capable of joining do they bring like abilities or you know knowledge that otherwise isn't accessible to the the pcs um, are they a liability? Do they need to be protected? Does it change the dynamics of the group? They can't fight as aggressively as they used to because, you know, you had to bring along your grandmother or your, you know, like ailing uncle or something like that because only he can solve the puzzle when it comes time.
1: Slash needs to be there when you like pick the flower under like moonlight and give it to him to heal whatever's wrong with him.
0: Yeah, sure. Stupid prophecy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Another thing to consider is, you know, often you are playing in a party or running a game for a party where everyone is like this hero, this fated hero, like the the reason that you are able to be the ones to potentially save the world is, you know, there's destiny wrapped up in somehow or like the the skeins of fate brought you all together or whatever. In order for fate to have done that within like the the game story itself, it probably manipulated your family members to get together to create you in the first place so it makes perfect sense to be like one of one of your parents is also involved in this somehow like unbeknownst to them or they are part of the prophecy or whatever because like this prophecy was made eight thousand years ago a lot of things had to be manipulated and a lot of people had to be involved in order to like get you to this moment it makes perfect sense that like you know, your your mother's old sword actually is the one that you need and like you've lived with it your entire life and all you knew is that it hung over like the hearth in the inn that your family ran and all you just thought it was a random sword that she used to use when she was like adventuring and gathering, you know, gold. Uh, but now it turns out great. We've discovered that we actually need to go back to my hometown and go get my sword. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the,
0: the magic sword of... Galadriel was just sitting there the
1: whole time. Because of course it was right. (laughs) (laughs) hiding in plain sight. Right. Fate was like, oh yeah, we'll put the chosen one right next to the chosen sword. And of course they'll (laughs) pick it up and use it. Right. Why wouldn't they? Right. Wait. Oh crap. Okay. Hold on. We've got to do 11 levels of adventuring so they could figure out they have to go get the sword. We left them in the first place. Fine. (laughs) (laughs) So to, to kind of close this, keep in
0: mind, uh, this is a shared narrative, right? So as a player, when you're writing family members into your backstory or, or as a GM, when you're trying to incorporate them, keep in mind, if you've got four to six or eight players at the table, it's going to be difficult to give them all equal share, um, you know, and, and also like players have different preferences for how involved these backstory elements might be in in the plot itself today so work with them kind of talk to your table try to understand what people are looking to get out of it uh, and and adjust things accordingly because ultimately the the value of introducing family members to your game is going to be driven by what it does for your specific group there's no other audience
1: right uh and if you are i mean we always talk about how players should be incorporating as many potential plot hooks as they can into their backstory and into the role play that they do. If you are a player, like I was for a very long time, uh, who prefers to be an orphan because it just makes things easier, really consider offering up some family connections as potential plot hooks for stories. I mean, one of the things that I love that uh, Steph in our gaming group often does is she has like adult children. Like Her characters have adult children partly because that's just sort of an interesting element and you know typically fantasy heroes are like 16 years old and like just going out in the world it's kind of nice to have like a 42 year old who's getting out there in the first place Mm -hmm. but also like those are backup characters if you got (laughs) somebody (laughs) will pick up my mother's sword right (laughs) apparently it's the sword of prophecy right (laughs) and she did all the work of going out to get it for me in the first place you know and also like I mean we've talked about this before in in episodes about like character death. Like it's tough halfway through a a quest to be like my character died. What happens? It makes perfect sense for a child to come along and be like, "Well, I guess my destiny is to finish this quest."
0: It's fine. Landfill too. It's fine. <laughs> All right. Do you hear that, Ishan?
1: You know the sword over the mantle always sings to me, but I think it probably means nothing and I'm just going to go out and buy a regular one.
0: All right. Well, if your sword is singing, then it's time to move on to the character creation forge and figure out what melody. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us.
1: It's shaving a haircut weirdly. I'm not sure why. <laughs> <laughs> we do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M U N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us at totalpartythrillergmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill.
0: And join the conversation on Discord, and you might even be able to suggest a show topic.
1: I'm Lisa Chen, and I host Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop games. There are so many women to behold in this amazing hobby, and our experiences as female gamers are as diverse as we are as individuals. Through one-on-one interviews, audio essays, and panel discussions, all centered around a monthly theme, the guests on Behold Her share their unique stories as players, game masters, designers, artists, organizers, and so much more. Their words are inspiring, uplifting, and informative. Check out Behold Her Podcast wherever podcasts are found, or visit BeholdHerPodcast.com. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we have the brother in arms, Shane. What do he do?
0: Well the brother in arms is the career soldier who understands the bonds that form between warriors. He fights for the good of his battle brothers not just for himself.
1: This is very space marine. Yeah, it's
0: uh I I always think of the Dire Straits song Brother in Arms which is I think like <laughs> I, about like Scottish highland warriors. <laughs> like, th- that's always I mean I know it's actually about like the 1982 Falkland Island War but like it always makes me think of like Scottish Claymore's and stuff.
1: <laughs> I mean, all, all songs about war make me think about Braveheart. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you know, right. I'm
0: thinking about like Scottish Claymore's <laughs> and the Napoleonic Wars, <laughs> which all was right. a thing.
1: <laughs> I mean, uh, at least somebody did. At least somebody had a Scottish Claymore. All right. What's the build?
0: The build is Battlemaster Fighter 15, College of Glamour Bard 5. I like this spread. Yeah, the name is bad for College of Glamour because it's not really what we're using it here for. <laughs> I wish it were called College of Swords. <laughs> but this I think is a better um help your friends kind of skill set here. So
1: Yeah, I mean glamour Bard's very like heavy on warlord feeling.
0: Right. And, and that's really where we're at here so you'll get third level spells uh from five levels of bard at second level you'll get jack of all trades uh song of rest to get a little extra hit points on short rests um but what you're here for are enthralling performance uh which after one minute you can charm up to your charisma modifier number of humanoids um for one hour now Normally, you think about using this offensively, you know, undermine the enemy, that sort of stuff. But what if you charm the rookies in your regiment to brace before the battle so they're less inclined to run because they look at you and they idolize you and they would never want to disappoint you?
1: You also get mantle of inspiration. So this is the in combat ability is a bonus action. You spend a bardic inspiration and Uh, creatures get uh, temp hp and can use their reaction to move without provoking opportunity attacks it is an amazing first round ability to sort of you know give people a little bit of a a buffer uh, against damage but then also get them in the right places uh, so that the strategy that you of course have put together ahead of time goes off without a hitch
0: yeah and it's also it's just a bonus action it's so cheap (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's great Um, At fourth level, you'll get an ASI. And then at fifth level, your Inspiration die will become a D8. And uh, Font of Inspiration will allow you to refresh all of your Inspiration
1: Dice on short rests. So from Battlemaster Fighter, we get three attacks. uh, Fighting style, probably protection here as a reaction. You impose disadvantage on an attack against a creature adjacent to you. And action surge. So you can do three more attacks uh, once per encounter. Do you eventually get it? No, it's just once. Student of War gives you an artisan tool proficiency of your choice. Great way to pull in uh, elements of your backstory. Did a family member perhaps teach you how to use this tool? Right. Uh,
0: You'll also get, of course, superiority dice and maneuvers. So you'll end up with six dice uh, that are D10s, refreshing on a short rest. uh, And you'll count up to nine total maneuvers. Uh, This is one of those situations where we probably take sub-optimal choices earlier on to kind of fit the theme, um, but things like Rally uh, to give Temp HP to your uh, friends, uh, goading Attack, Commander Strike, right? All things that um, either direct attention to yourself or help bolster your allies. Uh, then you want to look at things like Riposte, which of course is just good for hitting more things, uh, Parry to defend yourself, Distracting Strike is good for setting up your allies, and Fainting Attack sets yourself up.
1: And then eventually, you can look at things. You know the things you would normally take on a battle ma- ma- on a battlemaster fighter: trip attack and precision precision attack. Uh, although, you know, things like trip attack certainly um, can be a uh, warlordy and, and help your allies if you've got um, melee allies, because once you trip them, they'll get advantage as well.
0: At fourth level, you'll get the first of five ability score increases. Uh, this gives you enough room to grab various feats but also you can just boost your charisma um, which super fits the build and then also helps with your um, saving throw dc's as a bard and also gets you more uses of bardic inspiration so uh, or it gives you more value out of your mantle of inspiration so all good things there uh, at seventh level you get know your enemy you can observe them for one minute and then learn a couple stats about a creature it's just kind of a ribbon ability
1: at nine, you get indomitable. You can use it up to twice per encounter, which lets you reroll a failed save, which just makes you much harder to stop. And then finally, at fifteen, you get relentless. If you start a combat without a superiority die, you gain a superiority die. Although you'll have plenty of those, so this is really just if you're—I mean, in a in a trench warfare uh, session where it's just combat after combat with no rests.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll get that one extra commander strike for the rogue <laughs> or something, and move on. <laughs> In terms of leveling order, I think you want to start with five levels of fighter. You can't go wrong with those extra attacks. Then take all
1: your bard levels and then finish out fighter. All right, so Shane, who is your brother in arms?
0: So we've mentioned Cincinnatus and we've mentioned uh, Braveheart today. So (laughs) I think, I mean, my... My brother-in-arms is, is a farmer who is pressed into service, right, um, in, in service of his nation or, uh, you know, maybe just conscripted by the local lord um, and couldn't go back. Um, just recognize, like, having seen the horrors of, of warfare, like, had to make his career into keeping those poor sons and, and daughters of, of the community as safe as possible right like you can't you don't have the power to prevent the war so instead you have to make it as tolerable for your side as possible and um sort of feels that moral compunction to protect because he can uh feels that sense of i i will help see everybody through this because you deserve to make it home to your families uh sort of a tragic hero almost certainly bound to die in the battlefield uh (laughs) surrounded by a number of dead enemies and hopefully few dead friends
1: So, Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan. Yep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was a school teacher. That's totally different than a farmer.
1: (laughs) That's his his artisan tool. A ruler. (laughs) A ruler, yes. (laughs) How about you, Ishan?
0: Who is your brother-in-arms?
1: My brother-in-arms is the daughter of a famous and retired singer. And her family was always disappointed in her. So to bring in the the main topic, her family was always disappointed in her because she it's not that she didn't show aptitude for the family profession. It's that she showed no interest in it. Yeah, Oof, of course she worse. was trained to sing. She was trained in music. Like that's what the family does. You know, like you have here some of the greatest teachers uh, in the entire world because, you know, I am very good at what I do and I will uh, pass the trade on to you. But she was always much more interested in uh, fighting. <laughs> Fighting in the streets, uh, boxing, um, getting into getting into scuffles. And as of course, what did she do? She joined the army, much to would, her parents' chagrin. Would you say that she's fighting all around the world? Yeah, <laughs> fighting around the world. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but of course, war came. Uh war came uh to the country and you know, she had originally joined just a regular standing army, but now she was on the front lines and you know, was very good at what she did, uh, became uh, quite famous, and eventually finally realized that not everyone was quite as built for this as as she was, and they needed a morale boost. They needed uh, something to keep them in the fight and realized that her training as a a singer and, you know, her her training in oratory and music could lift people's spirits and actually make them better fighters. So she came right back around, and eventually on leave, you know, he makes, makes up with the family and realizes that you know you you were you were right all along it was this was a valuable skill for me to have although it's good that i'm still great at stabbing people <laughs> right <laughs> it's,
0: the, it's the bagpipe and the gun you know like the bagpipe is nice but only
1: because it comes with a gun well, she takes tavern brawler obviously so she can kill people with the bagpipe <laughs> right
0: <laughs> all right
1: before we wrap up let's take a moment and thank our patreon supporters Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill.
0: You can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That helps other
1: people find the show. And if you do, we will read it on the air. Here is What's Not to Love by The D Project. Five stars. Two guys talking real talk about RPGs. From the opening banter to their own game recaps, from character building to product reviews, Ishan and Shane make my drive to or from work much more enjoyable. It's like having friends in the back seat talking about the games I love. Uh, now it's we're we're like in the bathroom, while well, yeah. you're in the kitchen or the living room doing your work
0: or the shower. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> so, wait, can you turn it up? I I can't I can't quite hear. It's really hot in here. Right. <laughs>
0: All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're
1: talking about divinations and fortune-telling. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building the Madani Prophet. Well, that's it for episode 257 of Total Party Thrill.
0: I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.